This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Congressman Colin Peterson, the ranking member on the House Agriculture Committee. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Global Harvest Initiative, a private sector policy voice that is forging solutions to feed the world. Together with its member companies and consultative partners from the conservation, international development, and university sectors, GHI is advancing key policies and practices that will help provide the food, feed, fiber, and fuel we need as our global population rises to 9.7 billion in the coming years. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Minnesota Congressman Colin Peterson next. The Global Harvest Initiative's 2015 GAP Report, Building Sustainable Breadbaskets, showcases the vital role of U.S. agriculture in providing domestic and global food security. The GAP Report provides a special focus on the productivity of U.S. farmers and ranchers and the legacy of our conservation agriculture system. We must continue to grow solutions that conserve natural resources, adapt to consumer needs, and improve the economic vitality of producers and rural communities. The GAP Report also shines a spotlight on Zambia, a country that is diversifying its agriculture production systems to build its capacity as a regional breadbasket in southern Africa. With the right policies, innovations and practices, we can improve productivity, waste less, and conserve our precious resources here at home and around the world. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. House Agriculture Committee Ranking Member Colin Peterson labored along with other farm state leaders to bring the 2014 Farm Bill to law. The Minnesota Democrat says it wasn't a perfect bill and fears an extended period of low commodity prices and other factors will test the effectiveness of the safety net for the nation's farm community. I never thought it was what was needed in terms of the PLC. uh, We tried to put a floor under these prices that was realistic. The best we got for corn was 370. Uh, That's not, you know, it's not uh, the end of the world, but it's uh, not much more than break even if it's that. Uh, and then the other problem is that uh, 96% of the corn farmers chose the ARC, which uh, that's paying off for them this year, uh, probably next year. But then after that, it uh, won't be available, basically. And so I'm concerned about these 96% of the corn farmers that took ARC. If we continue to have these low commodity prices and we're in the tank for years from now, there's not going to be much help there. So we'll just have to see uh, how this all plays out. It depends on what happens with land prices and the other inputs and so forth. But, um, you know, even with the prices down, we had a big crop this year, at least in our part of the world. And so people are not panicking and they're not complaining too much. You had a $3 billion challenge to the crop insurance program that appears to have been alleviated through the transportation bill. Do you expect further challenges for crop insurance? And I know there's one particular proposal that would take as much as $24 billion out of crop insurance. I don't think any of that's going to go anyplace. Uh, how this provision got into the budget in the first place is a mystery. Nobody will take credit or assign blame. So somehow or another it showed up there. Uh, but, I, you know, there's, there's going to be people that are going to attack crop insurance, uh, either the way they did it in this particular case, or there's also people out there trying to put a, a limitation on the amount of subsidy and go to one entity and so forth, which will also, uh, without the larger producers in the system, it's not going to work. So, you know, I think we've got support to uh, 
to fend it off. So the other thing that's a question is when people, these people that perennially uh, complain about farm programs, when they find out that the ARC program is paying $80, $85 an acre to corn farmers where they were getting direct payments of $20 an acre before, I think that's going to generate into some kind of a controversy that might overtake the uh, crop insurance controversy going down. You had a hearing recently, and cotton producers were asking for help. Did you feel like the cotton program was adequate, and now do you think the USDA has the authority to declare cotton seed as an oil seed so that they might participate in programs? Well, apparently they do have the authority, from what I've been told, and I think given the situation in cotton, that's probably uh, the right thing to do. You know, we did the best we could in the farm bill for all of these commodities. Uh, you know, part of the reason it got diluted down is because the Senate insisted on two different programs. Uh, I still believe, I think Frank Lucas still believes, that the the right policy was the PLC program to put a floor under these prices, but other people had different ideas, and uh, so because of that, you know, the safety net was probably not as robust as it could have been, but we did the best we could under the circumstances. Any idea what this would cost, and would it violate our amber box agreement with the WTO? No, we're a long ways from any amber box limitation hitting that that level, so I don't think it's going to be any problem from that standpoint that I'm aware of. And, uh, you know, part of the reason we changed the cotton program was because of the Brazil case, and, uh, you know, we think we have now met the, uh, the concerns that the Brazilians had, and declaring them an oil seed for uh, for the cotton seed part of it, I don't think it's going to create a WTO problem as far as I know. Congressman, you worked hard for the dairy provisions inside the Farm Bill, but we don't see a lot of participation. Can can you explain why we, we're not seeing that? Well, I, I think that from what I can tell in talking to producers, uh, they still are in the mentality that somewhere or another the government is going to take care of low prices. And they're not used to buying insurance. They're not used to that kind of a safety net. And so what? What happened is, you know, we had some producers that bought $8 coverage when, you know, if you'd have looked at the situation, that probably wouldn't have been the decision that you would have made. And so they bought $8. They didn't really get any return on that. So now they're saying, well, I'm not going to buy anything, you know. Uh, that's a mistake. But the dairy industry and the dairy producers have got to come to terms with is that this is insurance. This is not uh, income supplement. This is not a replacement for the MILC program. This is insurance. And, you know, you don't buy insurance expecting your house to burn down. You know, and that's how they have to approach this. When they go into their banker, they need to look at their, P, their balance sheet and so forth, decide what kind of uh, guarantee they need to have on their underneath their income. Is that 650 above feed cost? Is it 550 Is What is the number? And, and how does that match up in relation to what you have to pay for it? Reduces under 250 head. It's literally free at six dollars and fifty cents. I think it's a big mistake for those producers not to buy that kind of coverage in case we have a collapse. But I think part of the reason we haven't had the participation is that when you look at the futures prices and look out into what's projected, uh, it's not showing any 
payments if you buy that level of coverage, and so people aren't buying it. But we will have a collapse at some point, and when we do, the people that uh, haven't bought insurance are going to be complaining, but I don't think they should count on the government bailing them out. You also held a hearing recently in the House Ag Committee with regard to farm credit. What were your impressions of that particular meeting? Well, you know, I, I don't think folks did a, as good a job explaining the mission of farm credit as they should have. Uh, there was a lot of concern, most of the focus, on what they were doing in terms of the situation with Verizon and also Cracker Barrel. Um, and uh, a lot of the members were not aware of this provision that was put in that allowed the farm credit to diversify. Uh, this was put into the law because we had one one of the um, banks, uh, 85% of their exposure was to coin and soybeans. And so uh, they felt like they should have an ability to diversify. Uh, it probably made sense, but I'm not sure that uh, you can make the argument that CoBank, uh, which is the one that was involved in this, um, really is in need of diversity because their, their loans are made to big co-ops, uh, CHS, uh, you know, uh, sugar, dairy, so forth. So I think CoBank has plenty of um, diversity to start with. I think they got the message. I think we're not going to say anything like that going forward. Do you see further challenges or further hearings questioning their practices? No, I think I think you know it. It, it was uh, you know they uh, they actually made a fair amount of money on the Verizon thing, but as far as I know, that's over with, and the Cracker Barrel thing was, was withdrawn. So I think it's um, kind of water over the dam. And as I said, I think uh, in the future after all of these questions, there's probably going to be more caution as they move into those kind of things. Let's talk trade for just a moment. The text is in for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it's being evaluated. How are you evaluating the TPP? Do you have a decision on it yet? Uh, I don't have a decision. We still are going through the text, and we're asking questions and, and uh, kind of weighing one part against the other, and I'm a month or two away from probably having all the answers and making a decision. I think that's where a lot of people are, um, the people that are serious about actually looking at this in terms of what it what it actually does. And having said all of that, I think a lot of people have, have come out and made decisions, it appears, without really looking at the agreement very much. And I think the agreement has a significant problem. I think if it was brought up right now, it would not pass. And so... There has to be some more explanation. There has to be more lobbying done by the supporters of it. And, um, you know, I think we're a long ways from, uh, you know, having a situation where we can be confident on pass if it comes up. There's been a tremendous amount of talk about expanding trade with Cuba. Do you see in the latter stages of this administration the Congress would be willing to address the Cuban trade situation? Uh, I think it'll be difficult uh, because of this. Florida Republicans, which is what's held this up. You know, I have, <clears throat> I've been trying to lift the embargo for a long, long time, and there's been some progress made. You know, the opening of the embassies and some of those things have made uh, loosened up a little bit of progress. But I was in Cuba, February, I guess it was. They're still a communist country. Uh, they're still buying products from other countries and paying significant more, like for rice and so forth. Uh, because of the past history with the United States. The fact that they're now having a discussion about the land and the assets that were 
confiscated when the Castro took over, and there's talks going on apparently about how to resolve that. Uh, if there was a resolution of that situation, that would probably move us further along towards uh, normalization than anything else that could happen. But it, I think, you know, it's the present time, you know, it's uh, we've, we've expanded uh, the interaction with the countries and opened up the embassies and so forth, and, and what has happened is the amount of trade, ag trade with Cuba has declined this last year, not increased. So, so it's not heading in the right direction right now. Also held hearings in the House on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Some might say too much talk and not enough action. Should should there be policy changes? Should there be work now in the SNAP program, or should these just be considered to, to bring the change not until the next Farm Bill? Well, I'm against opening the Farm Bill and making changes in SNAP means opening the Farm Bill, which so I'm not in favor of that. Um, I think some of the emphasis has been put placed on this program has frankly been putting the emphasis in the wrong area of where policy should be examined. Uh, you know, 75-80% of the people on SNAP uh, couldn't work if, they, if you wanted them. They're, they're children, they're elderly, they're disabled. And all this focus has been on work requirements. And, you know, we made changes back a long time ago that you could only be on these welfare programs, including SNAP, for three months if you're not working or not uh, meeting the requirements to find work. But the problem is we put waivers in the law that allowed a lot of areas where there are no jobs and a lot of people on SNAP, uh, we've allowed them to waive out of the law. So you have these ABODs and able-bodied people on SNAP because we gave the, the governor of the cities the authority to waive out of this. So, you know, that's one thing that should be looked at. The other thing is uh, this categorical eligibility which allows states to set the income threshold that you qualify for SNAP. The federal threshold is 130%. Uh, a number of states are, have set thresholds above that, and we've allowed the states to use that extensively for simplicity. So you have a situation where the states can, can qualify people for SNAP, and they send the bill to the federal government. They don't pay anything for it. You know, that's a dumb idea. You know, and I tried during the farm bill to have people address this. Uh, you know, we have 130% threshold. So in a lot of states, if you're above 130% of poverty, you cannot qualify for SNAP. But in, you know, like in my state of Minnesota, it's 165%. In Texas, it's 165%. In some states, North Dakota and Arizona, it's 200%. So you have a situation where some people, like in Fargo, qualify and people in Moorhead don't for the same, at the same income level. That's where the focus should be, in my opinion, on the policy changes, if any, that are made in SNAP. But, but I don't think we should do that until the next farm bill. Understanding that we will eventually uh, finish this uh, omnibus appropriation bill and you guys will get to break for the year, Congressman, I'd ask, look ahead to 2016. What do you expect will be in front of the Congress in an election year? Well, we don't usually get a whole lot on an election year, uh, but we, frankly, in the Ag Committee don't have much that needs to be done in terms of our jurisdiction. We expect the CFTC reauthorization will uh, happen in the omnibus. You know, GIPSA and uh, mandatory price reporting got done 
so the things that are our jurisdiction and that uh, are um, uh, for us to get accomplished, are, I think, are going to be done. It's, the question is, these other riders, these other regulations that potentially are very damaging the agricultural waters of the U.S., so forth, whether those get resolved uh, in the omnibus or not, uh, will affect on you know what we have to work on next year. But again, this isn't our jurisdiction. These are areas that are not under the control of the Ag Committee in the first place. So, you know, we got the farm bill done. We got our other work done. Frankly, there's not a whole lot other than oversight that needs to be done in the Ag Committee, and uh, I think that's a good thing given the climate that's going on around here. Uh, Congressman Peterson, we want to thank you so much for taking time in a very busy congressional schedule to spend with us here on Open Mic. Congressman, it is open mic, and you have the last word. Well, uh, I just want to thank all of our friends in agriculture for the work that they do, not only feeding the country and the world, but uh, coming to Washington and helping us try to explain our story to urban America and our friends that don't really get what we do in, in rural America and don't get what we do in agriculture. We have a lot of people that put in a lot of time coming to D.C. and they're going door to door and, and telling our story. You know, we are we have a lot of challenges, uh, and we don't always win everything, but without that help, we'd be in a lot of worse shape. So I just want to say thank you to everybody in agriculture, and I uh, hope everybody has a good holiday season and a successful new year. Our thanks to House Agriculture Committee Ranking Member Colin Peterson, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Global Harvest Initiative a private sector policy voice that's forging solutions to feed the world. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.